Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, again, welcome to our Wednesday night service. As um, Janet mentioned, we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We are going to be picking up where Nathan left off last week in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. But before we go there, we'll take a little recap of what he mentioned last week. And he began by giving us Uh, two themes or reoccurring patterns that happen in in those chapters, but also throughout the book of Genesis, um, which is God is always faithful. He he shows up, he has our back, um, but man is impatient and we continually make mistakes um, while waiting for God. In chapter 15, God is faithful really to reaffirm his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation to bless him with really innumerable descendants, which is a bit of a funny thing because because of his name, uh, meaning what it is, that he has no children, yet he's going to be the father of many. Um, But here he speaks to Abram in a new way through this prophetic vision. And he begins, as Nathan mentioned, with the phrase, fear not. And, And that's really important because this has been the challenge for for Abram up to this point is fear. Living a life out of fear, and we see that when he goes down to Egypt and he passes his wife off as his sister, which was a half-truth, which is an all-lie, and uh, the ensuing problems that come with that, and then he returns, and it's kind of this pattern he's already developed of not fully trusting God. Even as he waited to leave, as we mentioned uh, several weeks back, that the call he received was he was given while he was in Mesopotamia, and he waits. He then eventually kind of half departs with his dad, hangs out in Haran for a while, and then he goes. But it's this pattern of partial obedience and different things like that, and then acting in fear. He's made several decisions based in fear. It's good for it's, it's really a good reminder for you and I that despite our failures and our weaknesses, our perhaps default position to be afraid to step out in faith, that despite that, God is always faithful. And this is what God continues to bring him back to you. I made this promise to you, an unconditional covenant that I was going to do this thing. And he keeps reaffirming that, drawing uh, Abram back into this close personal relationship. Uh, Psalm 84:11 For the Lord God is a sun and a shield the Lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly There's a quote from uh, Psalm 84:11 that was mentioned last week because as as I said Abraham's yet to see these children that God is promising and he's getting older time is passing that would naturally cause some anxiety But God wants to assure him that he's not been forgotten. 
And he actually, in those chapters there, chapter 15, he's rejecting Abraham's desire or offer to have Eliezer become his heir. And God says, no, that's, that's not the plan. I told you from the beginning, that's not the plan. Verse 6 of chapter 15 sets the tone and the character of Abraham because at this point it says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is a, a key phrase because it's carried forward into the New Testament, um, a statement that the gospel is really founded in and affirmed in the New Testament in Romans and Galatians, Ephesians, James, and other passages that it is by faith. It's by faith that we live and that our salvation is established. Faith in Christ. As Nathan said last week, belief brought righteousness. Righteousness righteousness brought righteousness brought relationship, and relationship brought intimacy with God. That is the pattern. This idea that as we come close to God in faith and saying, I do believe that you are who you are and that you keep your promises. That brings about this righteousness in, through Christ that leads to a deeper relationship and that deeper relationship, that intimacy with God. Now, for Abraham, Abram, this intimacy is further deepened as the Lord reveals the future of Abraham's descendants mentioned in chapter, verse, the verses of chapter 15. And the vision, as he says, brings dread to him, this whole idea that his future descendants would be in slavery in Egypt is just this dark, ominous feeling. But he, he encouraged him and says, but that's not going to happen to you. It's not in your lifetime. You're going to live to a ripe old age, but yet this will happen. But I will not forget my promise that I made to you and, and by default to your descendants, that my promise would prevail and he, I, he would be, God would remain faithful to keep it. Then we get to chapter 16, and chapter 16 becomes kind of the antithesis of chapter 15. Abram believed God and was seen as righteous, yet here in chapter 16, he departs from this. Um, he's, he's really, his faith is shaken. They enter into this, him and Sarah enter into this plan to fulfill God's promise in, in human terms, uh, but they really only repeat Adam and Eve's sin of disobeying God and attempting to live apart from God's expressed will and purposes. And they abandon their roles as husband and wife, the roles that God has given them in leadership and submission as it, as it relates to the biblical example. And their sin results in envy and strife, um, broken relationships, and then as we look farther down the lens of what would happen with Hagar and her descendants, through Ishmael, is a whole host of problems that would extend even down to the nation Israel. We'll see that again tonight uh, in, our, in chapter 19. So we have the, the pattern established, God's faithfulness and man's impatience and sin. In chapter 17, it returns back to God's faithfulness now. It's just this back and forth, back and forth. A man being impatient, Abram and Sarah, and God saying, listen, I'm trying to tell you, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to accomplish this. Can we relate to that? Can we relate to, I know I can, to, to being impatient and, and then God reminding me through his word, through circumstances. 
that, listen, I, just hold still. Stop trying to fix the problem. I've got it, I've got it covered. So it's really about correcting. Chapter 17 really becomes about correcting Abram and Sarah's faulty thinking and deepening their understanding of God's faithfulness. And he emphasizes this by changing their names now, or the name that we're most familiar with, Abraham and Sarah. He changes their names to Abraham and Sarah, which now mean father of many nations and my princess. Previously, Sarai is princess, but now it's my princess. It's the sense of ownership, the sense of a deeper personal relationship. And this reaffirmation is sealed then with the outward sign of the covenant of circumcision. And uh, again, God is demonstrating, he's trying to tell them, listen, I'm giving you visible examples, much like he did, does, or does with the nation of Israel many years later through the piles of rocks on the other side of the Jordan and various examples saying, listen, I want to demonstrate to you that I've made a covenant and these are visible signs of that promise and covenant with you. And that's, those are things we need. Those are helpful things for our lives. I, uh, Pastor Doug, many others have encouraged believers over the years to put up those stones of remembrance, those things that we can point back to and say, God did that. That was a demonstration that he is faithful and that he will be faithful. And it's good for us to look back at those and hold on to them. They were meant to, these visible reminders of God were meant to focus their hearts and minds upon God as they forget or set aside the past. And that's, I think, a challenge for each one of us is setting aside our past mistakes. <coughs> I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you make those mistakes, you tend to th dwell on them for a while and play the what-if game. If only I had not done that, what would life have been like? But Philippians tells us in chapter 3, 13, and 14, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is to be our focus. Our eyes set upon God, not looking backwards. And again, we're going to see that again tonight. <coughs> which leads us to chapter 18. The pre-incarnate vis Jesus visits Abraham, and though this time his appearance is twofold in purpose, it's to strengthen Abraham and Sarah's faith in, the, in God Almighty by revealing the timeline for the fulfillment of the promise, but also to create a deeper personal relationship, one based upon grace and mercy. So picking up now at verse 16 of chapter 18, <clears throat> here they are. They visited with Abraham and Sarah, and it says, Then the men rose up for there and looked towards Sodom. And Abram was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, <coughs> Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord <coughs> by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. 
And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done it entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Having laid out this timeline for, for the fulfillment of the promise child, the Lord offers Abraham really the opportunity to peek behind the curtain, to look behind the curtain and, and see a bit of God's sovereign plan, which is about to unfold. And, and not only to, to see it, but to be a participant in it. Reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. No longer is Abraham a mere observer of the will and plan of God. He's invited to participate in the work, or really in this case, in the salvation or judgment of others. Now, for us, like Abraham, because we have believed in God, because we have, by faith, professed that Jesus is Lord, that the, the Father raised him from the dead, and that we've confessed our sin to him and surrendered our lives through forgiveness, and, and now he is leading us, we are now called heirs with Christ, friends of God and participants in his divine plan which involves everyone everywhere. And at times that seems a little overwhelming. I know for me anyways. As it says in verse 19, like Abraham, we are chosen by God to declare and display his goodness and glory, to reveal the benefits of a relationship with our God and our King. This is what God would desire to do with us. With this increased relationship comes increased responsibility. We have a responsibility to command or teach our children and our household about the faithfulness, mercy, grace, and salvation of God. And this is a weighty, weighty burden. I mean, Jesus would warn the people that were trying to prevent the children from coming to him. And he would later on say, woe to you, any of you that would make any one of these little ones stumble, it's better for you to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and you'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. He said, that's better than what will happen. So as, as parents, but also as believers in the body of Christ, knowing that children are watching us, we have a great responsibility. This was the responsibility that was that was laid before Abraham is to impart to his family and to his descendants the truth of who God is and the relationship that God desires. Picking up now there, <clears throat> verse 23, Abraham said, came near and said, will you indeed sweep with the ray of the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. 
far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And then this continues this conversation that he has. A few weeks back on Sunday morning, we learned about the responsibility that, that we have as believers. Uh, and described in Jude, verses 20 and 22, I'll read it for you. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So thinking of, of Abraham and, and, and our relationship with God, to believe in God through Christ ought to bring about in us a change of heart, a concern for others, to have compassion on those because of circumstances of life that are doubting the goodness of God. To be merciful, it says, to those who've lost their way through compromise. And even those having compassion and mercy towards those who've rejected the truth and kind of now blindly grope about in the darkness of sin and are actually stumbling, as it says, towards eternal destruction. So with the weight of God's impending judgment pressing upon him, Abraham remembers not only Lot and his family, but all those that don't know the truth of the Lord. Are you and I characterized by that attitude? Are we characterized by the attitude that would plead with God for even our enemies? Are our hearts filled up with concern for those who are about to perish in the Lord's coming judgment because it is coming. That is part of the point of this passage. And does it provoke us to speak up, to diligently pray or intercede on their behalf? I have to, I have to admit, sometimes this is a weak area. You know, I look at the craziness of our society and I find myself thinking, the last thing I want to do is pray for one of these knuckleheads. And then God is faithful to remind me, I hope as he reminds you, I used to be one of those knuckleheads. <laughs> and, it were not, and if it were not for others that were praying for me, interceding on my behalf, I might not stand here. This is what Abraham does in the remainder of chapter 18. Abraham's heart is moved by the compassion um, the, the grace and kindness and mercy of God that, that he's been shown in the middle of his mistakes, crazy mistakes, that it could have not just cost his life, but his whole family's life. More than once. And so he begins to plead with God. He pleads with God for those who are about to die. And he's basing it upon the enduring character of God. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. This is one thing he knows for certain, that God is just. There is justice coming, but he has also learned that God is 
merciful and gracious. He personally has experienced it. Have you? And, and does it provoke in you, does it provoke in me this desperate sense of, oh, Lord, would you slay the righteous with the wicked? Abraham, you see, he, he's fully aware of his own failures, of, of how God has shown that mercy to him. I mean, he's come to know and experiencing um, the defining character of God, the, the God of love. So he pleads with God to extend his justice with a similar measure of mercy and grace that he's received. In essence, what Abraham is saying, surely you, knew, you cannot bring a blight upon your good name and character. I appreciate some of the words of uh, David Guzik. He's a, a Bible commentator, and he writes, effective intercession is a matter of drawing near to God so we can pray with his heart. Effective prayer speaks knowing what God is and how God works in a particular situation. Effective prayer doesn't see itself as a passive spectator in what God does, but effective prayer acts as if it must actually remind God in prayer. Just, just a side note, this Saturday is our night of prayer, the first Saturday of each month. As we think about this, I hope that it inspires you, if you don't already, to, to attend on Saturday at 6.30. This is an opportunity that we get to express the heart of God on behalf of those that we love, but also to be reminded of who God is in our life. I've said this before, it's not my own, but I'll say it again. Prayer is not us reminding God of his responsibilities. It's us being reminded that he is responsible. The Lord is responsible for all things. He has all things under his control. He alone is faithful and dependable to carry those out in every circumstance of life. Even when we do not feel like it's happening or it will happen. This was certainly the situation with Abraham and Sarah, right? It's, it's 20 years now. And they're wearing, where is this child? Do we live in a manner that consistently displays this attitude? In my, in my daily living, will others learn about the compassion of God and his grace and mercy and his justice? as he faithfully dispenses it in my life? Will they see it? Will they acknowledge that is from God? At least one thing in life is certain, the righteous justice of God. He will not and cannot deny his character. He must judge sin. He's fully aware of those who've rejected him because he, he sees all things. He knows all things. Yet even in this, his heart of compassion persists towards those who belong to him. And this brings us now to Genesis chapter 19, which by the way, there's a little bit of a parallel. If you were to go to, to Judges chapter 19, verses one through 30, it's a, a little bit of a story that has some similar elements to it. But it says here, 
in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, now two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. What we're getting now is the completed picture of a life of compromise. Think back with me to chapter 13. Lot chooses, as, as Abram says to him, look, you know, we, we're having some strife between your herders and my herders, and there's too, too much livestock. The land can't support these two big groups, so we need to divide off. You, look, look all the way around you, every direction, and choose where to go. And whatever direction you go, I'll go the other way. In humility, in this place of servant leadership, he says, you choose first. Lot looks out and he sees the rich, fertile plains of the Jordan Valley and Sodom and Gomorrah in the distance. And it's a lovely, fertile ground. And, and in his heart, he's like, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the best. And he goes. And, and it says there that he sees those cities. And then it says, then he goes even further that he begins to move his tents toward Sodom. And then now we have here verse 12 of chapter 13, but Lot settled in the cities of the plain. And it says he pitches his tent toward Sodom. He just keeps this steady moving. There's a series of compromises. And it's based from the best that we can understand based upon his desire for more wealth and personal security. Can you relate to that? Making choices, not based upon what God would desire for us, but on what we think is most financially expedient that will give us the best bang for our buck. This was my greatest, greatest weakness prior to coming to Christ was my desire for wealth that I would not have to rely upon anyone. And that is a heart of idolatry. See, Lot, he moves away from fellowship with godly people. I mean, there was bound to be this happening, but it wasn't like, okay, you go there and I'll go here and we'll never see each other. No, I mean, he begins a path, a path of disassociating and associating with ungodly people moving closer to the godlessness, piece by piece, season by season, until now, now he's living amidst the sin of the world. He surrounded himself and his family with their evil influences. And that is bound to have serious, painful repercussions. Lot had everything a person could hope for. Him, him and Abraham were both very wealthy individuals. Food, clothing, shelter, good relationships with others. They had a relationship with God, but apparently for him it wasn't enough. He finds himself in his final compromise, living in the house of his enemies. He's sitting at the gate which incidentally is a position of authority in the, in, that was common in that culture. He's sitting at the city gate, which is the, the place where matters were judged. And, and we're going to see that even mentioned later on in verse 9. But despite being surrounded by sin, there's a part of righteousness that remains, and that's hospitality. 
says there, when Lot saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed face down and said, my lords, please turn aside into the house of your servant. Wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can rise and early and go on your way. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they followed him into his house and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, Romans chapter 12, and there's other passages as well, uh, remind us of the spiritual gifts, hospitality being one of them. Uh, throughout the New Testament, hospitality is, especially like in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 and following, hospitality is acknowledged as an evidence of salvation. And, and as believers were commanded to dispense hospitality faithfully. Some have a greater gift for it, but we're all commanded to act hospitably. Uh, Matthew 25:34 it says then the king will say to those on his right come to you who are blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you invited me in and naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison and you came to me it says then the righteous will answer when did we do all these things and his answer the short answer of the rest of this is, as often as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This act of hospitality, caring for others. Even as we heard last Sunday, 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, that spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the multitude or multifaceted grace of God. Now, as we look at Lot's situation, I, I can only imagine what we're all thinking. How in the world can we say that Lot is a man of faith, of, that he possessed a faith in God? And this has always kind of mystified me uh, even though I've, I've since learned the answer to that. But if you were to go over to Second uh, Peter 2, verses 6 through 10, it says this, speaking of Peter and speaking of how God interacts with his people, and if he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them as an example of what is coming for the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, that one just blows my mind. Righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the, by the perverted conduct, conduct of unscrupulous people. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, again, I'm struggling with that, <coughs> while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. It says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. And judgment. For the long time, I assumed Lot was only an example of a selfish, greedy, self-centered person. Um, just consumed by the things of this world. Uh, however, I mean, here in our passage, or here in Second Peter, it seems very clear. He should also serve as an example of what it means to compromise our faith in God. But 
to not lose our faith in God, which again is, is hard for us. <clears throat> uh, pick it up at verse 4 here. It says, Before they had all gone to bed, all the many of the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. <coughs> and they called out to Lot, saying, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have relations with them. Lot went outside to meet them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he pleaded, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them to you and you can do to them as you please, but do nothing, not do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, as we learn from the life of Abraham, when he failed to trust God, the Lord uh, traveled to Egypt. Lot also has failed to trust God for his provision for his security. He has really left the life of Abraham that Abraham invited him to be a part of, a, a, life, a life of reliance upon the Lord, uh, a, a life that would be defined as a foreigner in a strange land. Compromise reaches its lowest point and really like deposits him in this dark valley now to the point that he offers his daughters, his engaged daughters, by the way, as appeasement to these evil people. It's really important for us to note that if we abandon godly moral standards, the standards of the Bible, what God has said, then, then what moral standard will we live by? What standard is there? left to live by. Well, often our standards become pleasure. Our, our feelings rule our lives then. If it feels good, it, it must be right. And, and though at that time, the culture dictated that there, there was a responsibility to protect a guest in your house, this in no way could justify Lot's actions, his decisions. And it even further seems to highlight uh, the godless way women were viewed in many cultures of that day. Uh, even, even in Israel, leading up even to the time of Christ, they, they were seen as dispensable property. They were treated that way. It's been said that at the, the, the coming of Christ, the first coming, women were really reinstated to the role God intended from the beginning. This role equal in value, though different in responsibilities. And sadly, our culture today continues to twist the biblical idea of leadership, authority, submission, and service, both for men and women. Uh, we, we, it's all in the news everywhere today to make everyone equal. They have rejected God's roles for men and women. It's kind of reached this lowest point now in, in trying to remove the definition of what it means to be a woman. I don't know if you heard it during one of the recent Supreme Court uh, things where the, the Supreme Court nominee was asked, what is a woman? Well, I'm not a biologist, so I can't answer that. Again, in the absence of a clear biblical moral standard, what standard is left? This is a warning for you and I. 
as pastors, we met this week and Doug's like, you know, we need to stand firm after I'm gone. You guys, you need to stand firm. The truth, we need to hold fast to it regardless of the cost. Men are now being described with terms such as toxic masculinity. This idea that somehow we're, we're not men if we don't lead, if we, if, we, if we take that leadership role. Verse 9, the response of the, of the people towards Lot now. It says, get out of the way, they replied, and they declared, this one came here as a foreigner, and he is already acting like a judge. Now, again, this goes back to him sitting at the gate. They clearly know what he's been up to right? Setting a standard. Now will we treat, treat you worse than them? And they pressed in on Lot and moved in to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men at the entrance, young and old with blindness, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. Then the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? a son-in-law, your sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you. Get them out of here because we are about to destroy this place for the outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to the sons-in-laws who were pledged in marriage to his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. This is how much Lot's compromise has influenced others. They, they can't take him seriously. Even in his communication of imminent death and danger, they won't take him seriously. You and I, will people take us seriously when we warn them? Will they look at our lives and say, wow, that person really is an example of godly living. And so uh, their, their words and their life match up and, and it carries weight and truth with it. Or do people look at us and say, well, I don't think you even believe that. Be careful, compromise rarely stops at the first step. And the damage often extends far beyond our own lives. Verse 15, at daybreak, the angels hurried Lot along, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But when Lot hesitated, the men grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and they led them safely out of the city because of the Lord's compassion for them. As soon as the men had brought them out, one of them said, Run for your lives. Do not look back and do not stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or we will be swept away. But Lot replied, No, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness by sparing my life, but I cannot run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, there is a town nearby where I can flee and it is a small place. Please let me flee there. It is not... Is it not a small place? Then my life will be saved. Very well, he answered. I will grant you this request as well and will not demolish the town you indicate. Hurry, run there quickly, for I cannot do anything until you have reached it. 
That is why the town was called Zoar. And by the time the sun had risen over the land, Lot had reached Zoar. Again, it mystifies me. Righteous Lot. <laughs> He's fighting with these guys, arguing with these guys about his own rescue. He's resisting the rescue and the salvation being offered to him. But again, I wonder how many times, if God were to show me how many times I did that. How many times I resisted his invitation for rescue and redemption. Is it his love for his family that Lot wants to hang on? Is it love for his son-in-laws or even the people of Sodom who are about to perish? Or is it just a love for all of his possessions? We don't know. But we know this, God's grace and mercy is greater than Lot's failure and resistance. And that is an encouraging and hopeful word. As we think about and as I think about and pray for family and friends that I know are not walking with God, that, are, that have no desire to know him personally. God's mercy and grace is greater than our failures and our resistance. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is specifically referring to believers. But let's take a minute and, and consider our own lives and the mistakes that, that we've made, that I've made. How often did I compromise and how deep did I sink before the Lord rescued me? What was I holding on to or in love with that threatened to destroy me that God says, I got I to gotta take you by the hand. <laughs> I can't leave you there. You see, Romans 8 and 30, 8, 38 and 39 is, is a, a source of hope, a, a genuine source of hope for many people. And to, I think of like to the parents who, whose child has walked away from that relationship with the Lord and then dies at a young age and in, in really wrapped up in sin. Hope remains. For, for the family who, who experiences suicide, my role is, as a chaplain, hearing a, a dad just weep and wail as we had to tell him that his daughter had taken her own life. But there's hope in the hope in knowing that nothing can remove us as believers from the love that is in Christ Jesus. That assurance. There is hope in the faithful, merciful, and gracious Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And, and there's hope knowing that he sought out the worst of us. That's why it's so important that we see um, Abraham's character displayed, the character of God displayed through his, through his actions. The desire to see not just the name of God preserved, 
but for people to be spared. Though all things of this world might be lost, yet it is God who preserves the souls of those he belonged to him. However, as Paul reminds us in Romans 6, we should never arrive at the point where we test the goodness of God nor the assurance of salvation by remaining in sin. He says, may it never be. Should we, should we sin all the more that grace should abound all the more? And he says, may it never be. That's complete insanity. Because living in that circumstance, and even as we understand within the context of this, uh, of what's mentioned there in Second Peter, that Lot's soul was tortured. He was not a happy man. For the person who allows compromise to rule their life, there is little or no assurance or peace. For Lot, that with a tortured soul, it was no way for him to live. It's no way for us to live. I can relate to that. Because it's certainly not a way to reflect the goodness of God in our lives. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians, we can become so worldly that the Lord's only recourse is to take our life, to prevent us really from soiling his good name. So it says there in 1 Corinthians that he said, some of you are sick and a number have fallen asleep because of the sin that exists, especially around the abuse of the communion. Here's the truth. We do not know the day of God's final judgment. It could happen at any moment. Luke 17, 28, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like that on the day of the Son of Man, when the Son of Man is revealed. We are not promised tomorrow. We're commanded to, to examine our lives and say, Lord, I want to rightly reflect you to people who are perishing. So verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he destroyed these cities and the entire plain, including all the inhabitants of the city and everything that grew on the ground. Verse 26, But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Her life, her last moments of her life, serve as a one of those yellow signs that you see on the road, those twisty roads that says curves ahead, danger ahead, slow down. A warning for us to avoid at all costs the desire for things of this world at the expense of or delay of his coming and his judgment. It's been sad over the years. And when I first came to Christ and we moved back here to Oregon, um, Sam and I immediately got involved in um, youth ministry. I was just like, we were two kids, young people. We're like, at least maybe by some chance God might use us to help other younger people avoid the mistakes that we made. But it was so sad to hear things from some kids to say, well, God is just a user. 
no, listen, I, 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 I would rather, uh, I, I want, I, I don't want God to come right now. I, I got things I want to experience and things I want to do in this world. I want to, I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to, um, you know, have a career. And, and this is kind of what's happening here with Lot's wife is her desire for what she is losing was greater than for what she was gaining, which was salvation. Is, is that how I am sometimes? I, th I think so. Sometimes I, oh, I just, one more really big fish. <laughs> you know, just wait a little bit longer, Lord. No, my heart, my heart's desire should be, Lord, I desire to come quickly, but, but Lord, just if you could delay to save one more, that would be good. <laughs> That's the heart and attitude that God would have us carry about on a daily basis. So early the next morning, verse 27, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw the smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that destroyed the cities where he had lived. God remembered Abraham. God hears our prayers. Prayers of a righteous man produce much good. When our hearts are, are, are pure before the Lord and say, Lord, I just, I'd like to go be with you, but oh Lord, I, I see my family members, I see my neighbors, I see these children, and I desire for them to know you before you come. God hears our prayers, and he alone has the authority to make those changes. That's why intercessor prayer, intercessor of prayer is so important. That we, that it's, again, it's not just us expressing our own heart, it is us expressing what God has already placed into us, a sense of compassion and mercy and grace that we ourselves have experienced. Verse 30 in the remainder of the chapter, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains. We don't know why. But it just says, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, where they had lived, where they lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom over all the earth. Come, let us get our father drunk with wine so we can sleep with him and preserve his line. So that night they got their father drunk with wine, and the firstborn went in and slept with their father. He was not aware when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, look, I slept with my father last night. Let us get him drunk again with wine tonight so that you can go in and sleep with him. We can preserve our father's line. So again that night they got their father drunk with wine and the youngest daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware where she, when she lay down or when she got up. Thus both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of Ammonites today. This is the picture of the far-reaching consequences of compromise. As much as God had chosen Abraham to, 
to be that mouthpiece to educate his children, the same responsibilities also lied with Lot. And, And here he has given away that responsibility to the point his children just don't even know what to do that's right before God. Lot's choices and examples affected the lives of his children, opened wide the door for their sin. And worse yet, that set the stage for for harm to be passed down generation to generation that would eventually affect the people of Israel. Lot's life reveals a sad truth. We may have a saved soul, but a wasted life. Lot was rescued, but no more is heard of him. And his legacy really now is just one of evil and rebellion against God. It's similar to what's spoken of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. This is how he, he enters into the eternity with God as someone said, smelling a bit of smoke. Is that how we want to finish? Because it's not how we start. We have heard this before from the pulpit here and many Bible teachers over the years. It's not how we start, it's how we finish. What legacy will we leave for our children and this world? As, as I mentioned at the beginning of our study, as Nathan mentioned, Nathan mentioned last week, these chapters should point us to the faithfulness and mercy and grace of God. They should warn us to run from compromise and, and to be patient, waiting upon the Lord for, for his answers, for his provision, for his direction. It ought to remind us that the Lord's judgment is certain, that there is a coming judgment. And then that ought to move us to a place of compassion. Compassion that has hands and feet that says, I want to do something about someone's lost life. I want to live in such a way they would desire to know the hope I possess. And that God is faithful to rescue those who belong to him. We have hope even as we look around and we see people that we love that have wandered from the truth and have pierced themselves with many griefs. That God is the pursuer of lost things, isn't he? If we see this here, if we learn nothing else from Lot's life, God is the pursuer of lost things. However, we should guard our hearts and our minds against compromise, be attentive and compassionate towards others who are perishing, and be diligent to intercede on their behalf. Amen? God would have us to be that kind of people that demonstrate on a daily basis His heart, His heart of redemption. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.